Yeah, I invite you to open up First Kings, and we're going to be taking a look at the prayer dedication as we look at the uh, the um, dedication of the temple. Last time we were together, we saw the Ark of the Covenant finally find its home in the uh, in the midst of Jerusalem. God had promised through Moses that one day He would pick a place where His name would dwell. And so that place is Jerusalem, and the place where he inhabits is the temple that was there in Jerusalem. So we see the fulfillment of a promise that God had given way back to Moses being accomplished through Solomon. And as he accomplishes it, he, uh, he calls on the name of the Lord. And there's a lot of really interesting things as we take a look. Hopefully um, we'll be able to see that, <coughs> that God wants us to... To see what he has for us and what he's doing. So, if you remember, we'll just back up a moment and we'll say in the beginning of verse 9 of chapter 8. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb. When the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Now it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that a cloud filled the house of the Lord. So the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So God moves in. The Ark of the Covenant is set in the Holy of Holies. The cloud or the kabod, the weight, the shekinah, the glory of God dwells in the temple. The priests have to get out. They're just overwhelmed by the presence of the Spirit of God in, in that place. And then in verse 12... Solomon begins to speak. He says, Now the Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. The, the word for dark cloud is that the idea of thick. That the cloud, not necessarily like black like a storm cloud, dark cloud, but a thick. It, it's, a, it's a presence. It's not just like a fog in the morning. This was something more than that. So Solomon said, The Lord said... That he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. And the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who spoke with his mouth to my father David and with his hand has fulfilled it. So immediately, Solomon, as he's blessing the people, he's going to give a short history lesson. And here's why that's important, and why it's important for us to study the Old Testament. Because that's where we see the hand of God moving. And there's times when we read the Psalms, don't we, where the psalmist says, I cried out to God and He didn't hear me. Where is He? And if we're honest, all of us have felt that way at one time or another. I called out, God, where are you? And the comfort to the psalmist was then to look at times in the past, how the hand of God moved. It doesn't always move how we think it ought to. It doesn't always move the same timing we think it ought to. I'm sure if you asked Moses, when he was fleeing from Egypt, and he came down into the, to the valley there at the opening of the, of the uh, Red Sea, I'm sure he would have preferred that God parted the water as soon as they got there, so they didn't have anything to worry about. But when they got there, they were hemmed in by walls, Mountains, cliffs, and the and the Red Sea. They're hemmed in. There's nowhere to go. And then Pharaoh's army comes riding down on them. 
And they think all is lost. And then God delivered. We see later on the children of Israel coming to the flood stage of the Jordan River. And as they stand before the flood stage of the Jordan River, which is much wider than we see the Jordan today, as they stand there, they come up to the edge of water. God doesn't do anything until the priests begin to carry the Ark of the Covenant into the water. When their feet hit the water, God stops it and allows them to cross. When we come to these times where someone is rehearsing the history of the nation of Israel, the purpose is to say, God is always moving. He will always keep His word. He will always keep His promise to you. He will not always deliver you how you want to be delivered. He will not always do it with a full bank account. He will not always do it without any scrapes or bruises. But He will always fulfill His promise. So when we find ourselves in times of despair, Lord, where are you? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you answering this prayer? The psalmist's encouragement to us is, look at how God has moved in the past and be encouraged that he will keep his promise. And hold on by faith. God will keep his promise. He will fulfill the promises that he has given us. (coughs) So Solomon begins... Rehearsing the history. And he starts with blessing. Oh, bless the Lord God who is the whole point of verse 14 or verse 15 is that God has spoke to my father David and he made a promise and this is a fulfillment of it. You remember the promise? It's not been all that long ago. David got an idea. Everybody remember? David said, you know what? I got a house, but God still has this tent. And the tent's in one place, and the ark's in another place. There's not a centralized area of worship. I'm going to build God a house. Remember? He called Nathan the prophet, and he said, Nathan, I want to build God a house. And Nathan the prophet said, well, do whatever's in your heart. And so David begins to to put together plans for the temple. At that point, Nathan the prophet goes back home, and God knocks on Nathan's door. Hey, Nathan, I didn't tell you to tell David to build me a house. I want you to tell David, no, But you tell him, I'll build him a house. I'm going to establish a kingdom in his name. The promise that God's given him is that Messiah, God in the flesh, is going to come through his family. So David's pretty stoked. He's bummed that he can't build the temple. But God says, you won't build it, but what? Your son will. So here Solomon stands up. The temple's built. The ark's inside. The glory of God is inside the temple, and he stands up and says, Praise be to God who fulfilled his promise to my father David. He said this would happen, and look, here it is. It's important for us to learn, to see the things that God has done, rather than focusing on the things he hasn't. Our focus tends to be on how do things affect me. We're very selfish people. But God wants us to see things in, a, in an other's sordid view. The idea being that how does this affect the Lord? What, what am I doing for his name, for his glory, he being the focus? So he says first, here's the fulfillment. In verse 16 he says, Since the day I brought my people out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might dwell there, but I chose David 
to be over my people Israel. So here he says, this is a promise that God made. God said, listen, ever since I called out for me a special people, the nation of Israel, ever since I called them out, I never picked a place where I would dwell. But I picked a king. And I picked a lineage from which Messiah is going to travel. I did that. And then when we look at this, there's another thing I want you to see. Every time the, the word, the name is used, the name of God, it's always singular. Every time the word God is used, it is always plural. The name is always singular. The word God that we read, God, just G-O-D, in the Hebrew is Elohim, it's plural. It's actually for more than two. <clears throat> so when we look at it, we read in Matthew when the scripture tells us to baptize in the name, singular, of what? The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not in the names of, as though there are three separate gods, because the Bible tells us, right? Hero Israel, the Lord your God is how many? One God. One God, three persons, throughout Scripture we see it. The name singular, the phrase referencing God, always plural. Always plural. So here he's going to pick a place for his name, where his name may dwell. Verse 17. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build the temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build the temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. I love that verse because this is what that verse tells me. That God is the one who sees your heart. Sometimes we think about performance, right? If we were performance focused, then there would have been a problem for David. Because though it was in his heart to build God a temple, God had told him no. So he couldn't build the temple, therefore <coughs> there's no value to it. But what God says is... You did well because the desire to glorify me was in your heart. It was there. I won't, I'm not going to let you do that particular work. But he says it's good that it was in your heart. It's good that it was in that place. That your heart was focused upon it. So he says in verse 19, But nevertheless, you will not build the temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build the temple in my name. So here we see God giving credit to David who didn't build the temple, but crediting him because it was in his heart to do. That it was his desire. Give me, let me give you another example. When we come to the book of, of uh, Hebrews and we read about a fellow named Lot. You remember Lot when he was hanging out with his uncle Abraham, their, their herds got so big they started to fight. So Abraham came to Lot and he said, Lot, we need to divide. So you pick where you want to go. And Lot said, I want to dwell in the, the cities of the plain of the five cities. I want to dwell toward Sodom and Gomorrah. So that's where he moves his family. And Abraham goes the other way. Lot took the best part, the best part of the land. Later on, we find him in Sodom and Gomorrah. Then we see him in the gate. So he's part of some type of leadership within the city. When God's judgment comes upon Sodom and Gomorrah, God won't bring his judgment because Lot is still in the city. So he goes to get Lot, and Lot is visited by an angel. When the angel comes to visit Lot, um, the, these men waiting outside his room want to take the angel 
and, <clears throat> and rape him. So Lot offers his daughter to him to appease him. Thankfully, they didn't want his daughter. And so he just closes the door and brings him in. The angels ultimately have to strike the men with blindness that are outside the house. So that the men are groping in the dark, still trying to find the door to Lot's house so that they might try to take these angels. So when we look at Lot and we think, wow, this guy is pretty screwed up. He offers his daughter. His family ultimately is lost in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He and his two daughters flee and they live in a cave. His two daughters, they think that the world is going to end. So they get their dad drunk and sleep with him. And they each have children. From one daughter comes the Moabites. From the other daughter comes, comes the Ammonites. Two traditional enemies of the children of Israel. And we look at this guy's life and we think, yeah, he's messed up. He's messed up. But when we come to Hebrews, Hebrews says he was a righteous man. Because the things that the people were doing in Sodom and Gomorrah vexed his heart night and day. What's the point? His ability to perform was not always where it needed to be for Lot. But it was in his heart. And God credited him for what was in his heart. It should be encouraging to you and I, because I know that if we were to do to to expect a report card from the Lord based on how well we're doing, we're definitely gonna be closer to Lot probably than David. <coughs> but the point is, what's in your heart? What's in your heart? It was in David's heart to honor the Lord. It was in Lot's heart to be disgusted in, in, in by the conduct of the people around him. What was happening. And so the attitude of the heart goes a long way. Jesus said this, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That's important concept to grasp because before performance can ever happen in our life, before we are ever going to experience that solid walk with Christ, it's got to be in our heart. The desire has to be in our heart. If the desire is not in our heart, we're, we will always fall short. So this is the point that he's making in regard to David. And this is a fulfillment. Okay, he's pointing to the promises that God has fulfilled. So, in verse 20 he says, So the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke. And I have filled the position of my father David. And sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have made a place for the ark which is the covenant of the Lord. That concept, the covenant, same idea as the promise of God. The law is the promise of God. The word of God we hold in our hands is the promise of God. And the fulfillment of that word is God fulfilling his promise to us and to the nation of Israel here. He says in verse 20, uh, 22, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands 
toward heaven. So we come now. He blesses the people. He reminds them that this is a fulfillment of a promise that God gave long ago. That God gave to his father. And here it is before them. A fulfillment of what God said. And then standing before the altar. He lifts his hands toward heaven. And he begins a prayer. This is a prayer (coughs) of dedication for the temple. But it is also a very passionate prayer. We're going to come to the end of the prayer. And I want you to pay particular attention to what Solomon is doing when we get there. What he's doing right now. Standing at the altar. Lifting his hands toward the heaven. Great day. Exciting day, right? The temple's built. God's presence is there. They don't have to wonder, is God here or not? Because that thick cloud is in the temple. They don't have to wonder about whether or not God has a plan. They see his plan happening before them. So they're excited. The nation is at their height. The largest the kingdom's ever going to be is that day. Solomon is doing the... He's walking with the Lord. Things are, are headed in the right direction as he begins his prayer. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you. What's it say? With all their heart. There's one requirement of God. And it's interesting because the the letter from Jesus Christ to the first church in the book of Revelation deals with this one commandment of God. That you love the Lord your God with all your heart. The first letter to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation in in chapter 2. What's it say? You have left your first love. The one thing that God's looking for. We just talked about it. What was in David's heart. What was in Lot's heart. Even though the performance of their life wasn't always at the top. It was what was in their heart, a love for God, a desire to walk with Him. The same thing is here. Solomon, listen to what Solomon is saying. There's no God like you who keeps your covenant, your promises, who keeps your promises toward us, and mercy on your servants, who what? Walk before you with all their heart. Who walk before you with all their heart. That's their desire. For you have kept... What you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. So Solomon, as he begins his prayer, he, he begins to, to talk about how, what a great God he serves who looks at men's hearts and was faithful to his promise to his father. So he's looking at the past, what God has accomplished, what God has done. How God has fulfilled his word in the past. And then in verse 25, (coughs) he says, Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, when you said, You will not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. Only if your sons take heed to their way, that they walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, Again, I want you to think about what was it that the Lord called David? A man after what? God's own heart. Now we know the performance of David was lacking, right? We got the whole adultery thing with Bathsheba, among a few other issues in his life. Wasn't necessarily the best father on the planet. 
But he loved God and he wanted to honor God. And God held sway in David's heart. And so Solomon says, now keep your promise. You promised my father that there would always be a king on the throne as long as his children walked like he did. Like men after God's own heart. It's not even going to last one king. Solomon's not going to finish well. He's going to finish his reign, but the kingdom's going to divide when his son takes over. Because already the walk, the heart becomes divided. Why did Solomon's heart become divided? Because he disobeyed God on at least three areas. The Lord said not to multiply gold, but Solomon has so much gold, he stops counting it. The Lord said not to multiply horses, the the might of your army was valued in your horses. But Solomon had more stables than any other king before or since in Israel. And then he was told not to multiply wives. And he had more wives than anybody else on the page of scripture. And God said, the reason I'm telling you this is so that your heart won't be divided. It's so important for us to learn to have a loyal heart to God. A loyal heart to Him. That means that my heart's not divided, that I, that I want, want both the Lord and the world. Jesus said you can't have both. You can either have me or the world. You can't have it both ways. If we do, we have a divided heart. And we won't be able to finish well because our heart is is divided. We want to be men and women after God's own heart, then we need that loyal heart focused on the Lord. And so this is the prayer that Solomon's saying, that we'll always have someone on the throne. It's, it's not even going to make it for a generation. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> but he goes on in verse 26. But now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. And he says... You be true. And in a moment, he's going to give this incredible prayer of intercession for a nation who's not failing yet. Isn't that a unique concept? To pray, to intercede for a nation that's not failing yet? We tend to wait until the nation's circling the drain, right? And then there's a call to intercede on behalf of our nation. But Solomon begins praying before it ever starts. If he had kept doing that perhaps things would have have been a little bit different but he asked God to be faithful to his promise and the Lord is faithful to his promise in verse 27 Solomon acknowledges that it's a foolish concept to believe that God can live inside of a wooden or a stone building he says in verse 27 but will God indeed dwell on the earth behold the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you how much less this temple which I have built. He understood that the entirety of God wasn't there, but that there was a presence. God's presence there. His willingness to focus his attention, if you will, in that area where every Jewish male was to come three times a year to celebrate. And so, in regard to that, he begins his prayer. He says, Regard the prayer of your servant in his supplication, O Lord my God. Listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today. Now listen. That your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day. Toward the place of which you have said, 
my name shall be there. That you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And you may hear the supplication of your servant and of the people of Israel when they pray toward this place. Here in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, what does he say? Forgive. What's the whole purpose? So that men, women, the nation can have a right relationship with God. So men are going to pray toward Jerusalem, wherever they are. Wherever Jews are around the world, when they come to the time of prayer, they're going to face toward Jerusalem. When we come to the Babylonian captivity, and Daniel prayed three times a day, morning, noon, and night, and he always prayed facing out the same window toward Jerusalem. Praying toward the temple. And (coughs) what we read in 1 Kings and First Chronicles are the prayers Daniel was praying in Babylon all those many years later when what Solomon warned might happen did happen. So the point is, here is where we can confidently bring our supplications to God and we know that you're going to hear and your desire when we call on your name is to forgive. Is an attitude of, of change and repentance when you hear Forgive. He goes on in verse 31 and begins to pray about the confidence he can have in God's mercy. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act. Judge your servants, condemn the wicked, bringing his way on his head and justify the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. He, he, not only is there confidence in the forgiveness and the mercy of God, but then there's also confidence in the judgment or the justice of God. When there's a problem between neighbors, he doesn't say if there's a problem. He says when there's a problem between neighbors. Because there's always going to be problems between people. As long as there are more than one person involved, there's an opportunity for trouble. And so he says when there's a problem, when there are issues, and they, and they come and they make their oaths before you, you judge God. You uphold the righteous and bring the, the, the one who's cheating or lying or what have you, bring judgment upon his head. Justify the righteous and by giving him according to his righteousness. And when your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then here in heaven... Forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. That's exactly what Daniel is going to do. Daniel, as he finds the word and as he studies the word, he's going to see, oh, here's what's gone on. We sinned and we're in captivity and we need to repent. And Daniel, of whom not one sin is ever mentioned, repents for his nation. And he says, Father, forgive us. What is it we, we, we quote all the time in First Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. The idea, the same thing, same prayer. Solomon is lifting up and he's saying, when we, he doesn't say if, does he? It doesn't say if, it says when your people are defeated. When they have sinned. When they turn their back to you. 
And when they repent and return and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear and forgive and bring them back to the land. Solomon already sees it. Maybe because he's already beginning to see it in his own life. He understands that the direction of the nation is headed in this way. In verse 35, he talks about God's provision. Listen. And when, not if, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain. Oh, that never happened, did it? Oh, yeah. Several times, right? When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain, (coughs) because they have sinned against you, when they pray toward this place, and what's it say? And confess your name. Look at the focus on the name of God. When they confess your name. When they confess your name. That phrase, to confess your name, is a phrase that deals with confessing the character of God. Of who God is. Of, of what, what, what God is, is like. The, the, the example that we have in the New Testament is Jesus Christ reveals to us who, who God is. He is God in the flesh. He's the God that we can know, that we can, that we can see the way God is through him. To confess his name is to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, God, Almighty. Here it's a confession on the name, the Ahavahweh, the becoming one. What's the idea that God is everything that you need? Jehovah, Yahweh, it's what it means. The becoming one, that God is everything you need. And so they're confessing their need. What is it for them to have sinned and fallen away? That they have a divided heart. That now something else is the focus. Baal worship, right? Uh, Sexual immorality, uh, gold, women, song, whatever. There's always these things they want to divide our heart, right? And so the concept of confessing his name is to come before the Lord with an undivided heart. To give him that right place again. And then he would bring the people back. When we look at our lives and we wonder why our lives resemble a roller coaster with high highs and low lows. Look at the low lows and see if you don't have a divided heart in those places. When your focus hasn't become something else. I'm not saying it's not something good. It could be something good that divides your heart. If it's not God. If it's not His glory. If it's not a life given to Him. That's what salvation was all about, right? We gave our life to Him. Who gave His life for me. And so we want to have that singleness of purpose. And so He says, when, when these things occur. But when they confess your name and turn from their sin... Because you afflict them, then here in heaven, forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send the rain on your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Throughout scripture, God said, guys, if you want to know if you're off track, I'll make it easy for you. I'm going to move you to a land that does not have any irrigation. So you're going to need rain. And if you and I aren't okay, I won't send the rain. So if your life is dusty, if it's filled with drought, 
God says, look to me. Because out of him flows fountains of living water. It's not dry and dusty. It's not a place of drought. It's a place of refreshing. It's a place where God gives us those things that we need. If we're in a dry, dusty, dreary land, then we need to look at our heart. Is my heart divided? Or is my heart his? <coughs> is my heart on the Lord? When I come to him, he sends the rain. In verse 37, he says, When there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone, or by all the people of Israel, when each one knows the plague of what his own heart, and spreads out his hands toward the temple, then here, forgive, act, and give. This is what he's talking about. When any pestilence comes. I love Joel chapter 2. I always said one day, maybe before I die, I'm going to write a book called The Years That the Locust Ate. Kathy and I used to have rings. Mine fell off in the ocean. But we used to have rings that uh, had Hebrew le- uh, a writing on them. When we, on our 20th anniversary, because nobody ever thought we were going to make it that far, we were in Israel together and we decided to, to pray uh, and, and rededicate our, uh, our marriage. So we did a renewal of vows. And so we stand before the Lord and we renew our vows and we got special rings. And this fella came, you know, to say, well, what do you want on the rings? And we're in Israel, you know, they're just going to make it that day. <coughs> so we said, well, can you put on there, I'll give you back the years, the locust ate? And the guy's like, what? Yeah, can you put on the ring? I'll give you back the years that the locusts ate. Thanks. And uh, he looked at us like, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard in my life. Nobody puts that on their wedding rings. So he said it's too long. He couldn't do it. So we ended up putting on them, uh, I'll give you beauty for ashes. Same kind of a concept. The idea here in the prayer of Solomon is the same thing. God said... If we walk in disobedience, if we have a divided heart, God's not central in our life. He'll send the locusts. If we're honest, most of us have experienced the locusts at one time or another. Now, maybe they're not real grasshoppers who come flying in and eat all our crops. Maybe they are. But more likely, the, the example in Scripture in, the, in Joel says that the grasshoppers will fly in and they will eat everything. Every green thing, every good thing, they will eat your time. They will eat everything in your life. And you'll find yourself in a place, the Lord says, where you're going to be calling on me saying, Lord, what's going on? The locusts are eating everything. They've taken it all away. I have nothing left. And you'll call on me with a whole heart and an undivided heart. And we turn toward the Lord and God makes his promise. I will give you back the years that the locusts ate. I love that promise. I will give you back the years 
the locusts ate. There's probably about 17 of those in my life where the locusts was gnawing on all my shins, man. They were, they were all over me. And I'm thankful for that promise, the years the locusts ate. This is what Solomon's talking about here. Hey, when the pestilence comes, and notice what he says, the disease is not, what I do with them? The disease is not the thing that's, <coughs> that's afflicting you. The disease is that thing that's in your heart. Look what he says. Whatever, uh, whatever prayer is made by anyone, that's why it was important that Daniel was willing to pray, or by all the people, it's a, not an and, it's an or. Notice that. When each one knows the plague of his own heart, what's happened in their heart? Divided heart. Divided heart. When each one knows, he spreads out his hands, what, toward this temple, praying toward Jerusalem. They still do this today. If they're in a plane flying and it's time for prayer, Jews will get up, find the, the, way, the part in the plane that, that is facing toward the east or west, wherever they're at in the world, toward the Jerusalem, and they'll pray. <coughs> You'll especially notice it when you're going to Jerusalem because you tend to see more Jews on those planes than you do at other times. But they'll pray toward Jerusalem. Then here in heaven, from your dwelling place, and look what he says, forgive and act and give. To everyone according to all his ways. Look at the next phrase. Whose heart you know. You see it's all about the condition of the heart. It wasn't about the performance of the children of Israel. Our performance is is always going to be at best sketchy. It's the condition of my heart. Condition of my heart. And he says here, the Lord knows it, right? Whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. When David was chosen as king, you remember what the Lord said to Samuel? You judge on the outside, but how do I judge? God says, I judge by his heart. His heart. Same here. The heart coming to the Lord with an with a undivided heart. Loyal to him. Loyal to the Lord. For what and to what end? In verse 40, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to your to our fathers. <coughs> Remember when we look at that phrase to fear, it doesn't just mean to be terrified, it means to reverence. That you reverence God. When I reverence or honor my father, there are things I won't do because they're displeasing to my earthly dad. You guys know what I mean? Growing up, there were things I knew I wouldn't do them, and I would not because I didn't want to do them, but I wouldn't do them because of what it would do to my father. Now, that's my earthly father. In a relationship with Almighty God, how can that be less than an earthly relationship. It can't. So when the Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, it's an understanding to live your life to honor God in what you do and what you say and who you are and what is going on in your core. To honor Him, the point. 
to honor the Lord for all he does. Now, we see Solomon's heart begin to branch out. Now, I guess I understand some of the concepts about this, but even in our nation, I think we struggle with this understanding that God has, at least, toward a foreigner. Look at verse 41. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who's not of your people, but who has come from a far country for your name's sake. I want you to think about what that phrase. Because if we're honest, that is no different than any what we call illegal alien today coming to the United States. Why do they come here? Well, ultimately, if we take it to the lowest common denominator, because the blessing of God is the land of plenty, we got all kind of stuff that I don't have back there. But listen to God's heart. He says, Concerning the foreigners, not of your people, but come from a long ways away, for your name's sake, that they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this temple. So that the Solomon is saying that they would hear about God, that they would hear about his name, that they would come to an understanding of who God is and what God has for them. This is the king of, at the time, the wealthiest nation on earth. The most blessed nation on earth. And if you think people weren't coming to Israel to a land that had so much gold they weren't counting it, you need to rethink what, what you're thinking. People were coming all over. Queen of Sheba is going to come in a chapter just to see if, if all she's heard is true. Yeah, they're coming. What's Solomon's heart? Not keep them away. May they come to know God when they come. May they see your name. May they see your glory. May they see your majesty. May that be what they find when they come. Your <coughs> outstretched arm. And when the foreigner cries out toward the temple, here in heaven, and do according to all which the foreigner calls to you, that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. Now this is amazing because the Pharisees are pretty sure that anybody who's not a Jew is just fodder for hell. But at the time of Solomon, Solomon's saying, hey, the Gentiles, come and know who God is. To the other nations, the foreigners who are coming, come and know who God is. Come and see him. Come and see what he's done in this place. That God may hear your voice and do according to all you ask. So that all the people on all the earth may know your name and fear you. See, Solomon's focus at this point is the glory of God. That they might know you. Not how they affect me. That they might know you. It's, it's all about the glory of God. That the people around the world might know you. That your name would be glorified. That your name would be magnified. His focus is not upon himself. And he says uh, that they would know your name and fear you as do your people Israel. And that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. The character of God. That they would come to understand who God is. The becoming one when they came. That was Solomon's focus. All throughout scripture you see God's focus in 
being hospitable to the alien, that you would have open arms. Well, they're going to take advantage. Yeah. So do your kids. They're going to take advantage. That was God's uh, command to the people. Be hospitable. If it is in your ability to help, help. If it's not, then you can't. But if you can, be a part of a, of a solution. Be a part of a solution. Well, <coughs> Scripture goes on to tell us then in verse 44, And when your people go out to battle against their enemy, again, please see that this is when, not if. Are there going to be battles in your life? Absolutely. You mean it's not just going to be smooth sailing? No. When your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them, and when they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. That God would guide, that he would provide, that he would be that that shield around them in the battles that they will face. Same thing, Solomon's prayer as he lifts out this cause to the Lord. And when they sin, oh, you mean they're gonna? Yeah. When they sin, not if they sin, or it may perchance they may stumble and, and fall. No, he says, when they sin against you, for what's the next phrase? There is how many? No one who does not sin. We catch that? So there is no one good, no not one. It doesn't get any plainer than that. There's no such thing as a person good enough on their own that God would allow them into heaven based on their goodness. There is none that do not sin. And you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy and they take them captive to a land of the enemy whether far or near. But listen, when they come to themselves in the land where they are carried captive, what's the next phrase? And repent. And then make supplication to you in the land they've been taken captive, saying, we have sinned, we've done wrong, we committed wickedness. And they return to you, what's that next phrase? With what? All their heart. Undivided heart. Listen. God doesn't want to share us with anything. Doesn't want to share us with anybody. (coughs) Jesus said, unless you love me more than any other relationship you have, then you're not worthy of me. That he becomes that central part, that he's the one who has your heart, undivided, loyal to God, given to him. That's the whole point. When they recognize we messed up, and they repent and they come before the Lord. Repent means they agree with God and change their direction. I agree. Oh, 
Lord, I'm wrong. I turn my direction back toward him. And I say, forgive me. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and what? From what? All unrighteousness. Remember your Greek lesson? What's all mean? All means all, and that's all that all means, right? So when we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us our sins. It's not some kind of guilt trip he's taking us on. It's a, it's a journey to help us understand, wow, I got off track. I was, I was in a place I shouldn't have been, but now I recognize that's not the area I want to walk in. This is where I want to walk. Forgive me. And he forgives me. He gives me a new day. A new start. He says, even if they're in another land, enslaved, in chains, as slaves for someone else. Did it ever happen? Happened in Babylon. Happened in Assyria. Sure it happened. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen still again. <coughs> and God's people once again will turn toward the Lord in an attitude of repentance. And put their faith and trust in their Messiah. That story is still coming. The scripture lays out when they wake up and they find what they've done and they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and they pray to you toward the land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the temple which I have built for your name. Then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause and what forgive your people who have sinned against you. And what's it say next? And all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you. And grant them compassion before those who took them captive that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people. They are your inheritance whom you brought out of Egypt out of the iron furnace. His own peculiar people called out of the land of Egypt and here, again, Solomon says, they're your people. But one of the greatest things we, I think, as a church have to come to understand is in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And that's the understanding that God is not written off the nation of Israel. Why is that important? Because it means then he's not going to write you off either. He's not going to write you off. All day long, Paul writes in Romans 9, 10, 11, the Lord reaches his hand out to a disobedient, contrary people. But the emphasis is on all day long, he reaches out his hands. How long does he reach out his hands toward you then? All day long. All day long, God wants to do... <coughs> God wants to do that perfect and amazing work. And he'll forgive and he'll renew, and he'll restore, and he'll give you back the years of locusts. Hey, what's required what, over and over again, what Solomon's saying? Turn away from your sin, turn toward the Lord, and ask for forgiveness. And he'll hear your prayer. And he'll forgive your sin. And he'll heal your land. The same thing that we see in, in First Chronicles we see here. Well, just a couple more verses that I want to share with you. He goes on and says, Now, <clears throat> that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant 
and the supplication of your people Israel, to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the people of the earth to be your inheritance, as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. And so it was, listen, when Solomon finished praying all this prayer and the supplication to the Lord, that he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread to heaven. Do you remember how he started? He was standing before the altar with his hands raised to heaven. How did he finish? On his knees. It's a passionate prayer. He's, he's calling upon the Lord who does not is not deaf toward his people. Ever. God hears every prayer, every cry you utter. And God is moving. And God is doing. It just doesn't always seem like he's doing it our way. But if we're honest and we think about what our way has got us so far, it's no wonder God's not doing it our way, is it? Yeah, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I'm not so shocked. He was kneeling. Started standing, finished kneeling. And then he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel. The most rest they ever experienced is right here during the reign of Solomon. According to all that he promised, there has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised through his servant Moses. Please hear what God said. He will never break one promise. Jesus said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to bring you unto myself that where I am there you will be also. Is that a promise? God's never broke a promise in his life. He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Is that a promise? He's never broke a promise in his life. He said, if you confess, I'll forgive. Is that a promise? Absolutely. Will he keep his promise? Sure. He said, if we come to him with our whole heart, he won't cast us aside. He'll receive. Is that a promise? Sure, it's a promise. He will fulfill every word he ever spoke. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is that a promise? Sure it is. It's a promise. God keeps his promises. He says in verse 57, May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he never leave us nor forsake us. That he may incline our hearts toward himself. That we would walk in his ways and keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments which he commanded our fathers. So his prayer here is he's calling out on the blessing of the people. Keep our hearts turned towards you. Incline my heart towards you. What a great prayer. I want to have a whole undivided heart. So why not pray, Lord? Incline my heart toward you. That you would have that right place in my heart. He goes on. And may these words of mine with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night, 
that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel uh, as each day may require so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. The second thing he asks is that they would maintain their witness before the world that they would know that God is real. That all the people of the earth may know the Lord is God. Help us walk. Help us do what you're asking us to do. Help us maintain our witness that I am who the Bible says I would be. That I look like what the Bible says I would look like. Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples because, what, you can quote more Greek or Hebrew words? What's it saying? That because of your love one for another. They'll know you're my disciples by your love one for another. The way we care about one another. That our that we would maintain our witness unto God. Longing for him to be glorified. Listen to verse 61. So let your heart therefore be loyal to the Lord your God. To walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as is this day. It's exactly the same thing as saying. Let your heart not be divided. A loyal heart. Given to the Lord. Focused upon him. Then the king and all of Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord, 22,000 bulls. Seem extravagant? 22,000 bulls, 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. Now this is during the feast. Of, the, of tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day feast. At the time when the temple is dedicated, they're going to extend it to 14 days. And during that 14 days, this is how much he's going to sacrifice. Seems like extravagant worship to me. Is there such a thing as too extravagant? Too carried away? Too into God? David danced with all his might in his ephod. He danced and his wife said, you look ridiculous. The king of Israel out there dancing in his undershirt. And all the people looked at him and he didn't look royal. You look like just another worthless person. Was his worship too extravagant? Nothing was too much for the Lord. Solomon gave all this. And even all this is just a fraction of what he had. And everything he had was what? A gift God had given him in the first place anyway. And on the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in the front of the house of the Lord. For there he offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, the fat and peace offerings, because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small. I mean, he did 120,000 sheep and, and what do we say, 20-some thousand bulls. They couldn't get it all in there. On the one altar that they had. So they, they consecrated a section in the middle court. Or the court of the women. And they used it for more sacrifices. And they, they brought them all out. It was this extravagant offering that he gives. And in verse 65. At the time Solomon held the feast. And all Israel with him. A great assembly from the entrance of Hamath. To the brook of Egypt. Before the Lord our God. Seven days and seven more days. Fourteen. The Feast of Tabernacles, twice as long. On the eighth day, he sent the people away, and they blessed the king. 
and went to their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for Israel, his people. The end of chapter 8, we're pretty much at the height. There's a couple more things we're going to see, pretty positive things that are going to take place, but we're at the height of Solomon's reign, the greatest period spiritually for the nation and what's going on. And unfortunately, what we have left is the decline. The warning that he gave against a divided heart is the very thing that's going to claim Solomon. A divided heart. If it claimed the wisest man who has ever walked, we really think we don't have anything to worry about. We want to guard in the same way that our heart would be loyal toward the Lord. Undivided and focused on him. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this time that we can study your word, God, as we look at the book of Kings and the reign of Solomon, God, and all that you do and work in his life. You know, God, I'm thankful that you keep the promise you gave to Solomon, even though the performance of his life was not so great. You kept your word. You still gave him all the things you promised him, even though... He wasn't worthy. You still fulfilled your word because your word declares that you exalt your word above all your name. You will keep every promise ever uttered. That's the God we serve, the God who keeps his word. So Lord, as we come before you tonight, I pray that you would just help us, Lord, to come to you with undivided hearts. If there's areas in our heart that is divided, where our focus is somewhere else, God, then may we repent, turn towards you, confess our sin, and receive the promise of forgiveness. It's just that easy. And then, just like David before us, we stand up and we begin to walk again. And when we find that our heart is divided and we're off track, we stop, repent, confess, and you forgive. And that's how our lives are supposed to look. <coughs> God, as we look at our nation and we see the decline of a nation, we're reminded of the promises here that Solomon speaks of. Of whether it's one person or all the people. If they will call if they will confess, if they will repent, I will hear and I will move. God, we need you to move on our behalf for our nation. For we have sinned. We have turned our back on you. We, the church, have allowed it to happen by just sitting back and letting it go. We are responsible and we are guilty. And we need your forgiveness. And we need your empowerment. And we need revival to sweep through our land. And whether we ever climb once again to the place of prominence in this nation, more important is 
that your name would be glorified, that people would come to know who you are, the truth, that they would come to know you and find a place in the city of our God, a place where you, the place we belong. Lord, I pray that you would move and that you would do a perfect work as we just lift it out before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to close.